Welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends from Philadelphia get together and talk about movies. We are so excited to be moving through our Troubled Productions Month. Uh, And before we focus on today's movie, just want to check in. Here we have Sam, Dave, and Connor. How's everyone doing? Any exciting movies that you've seen? Terrible movies you've seen? Things in your life worth noting? I've got to talk about a movie. Please do. I watched Malignant. James Wan's new movie on HBO or you know, movies and then also on HBO Max. And I didn't absolutely did not like it, like in almost any way, shape or form. There were some cool shots, like there's a tracking shot of like above the house as it goes from like room to room and floor to floor. So like a handful of cool shots, I would say four or five funny lines. And like everything else just fell totally flat for me. From looking it up, I've seen this movie's pretty divisive and even you know, texting some of my, my fr- other friends being like, oh, I loved it. Oh, I hated it. So it's, it's interesting when a movie causes such like a stark reaction. But this really this one was really not for me. Um, and so I, I would love to hear if you guys eventually one day watch Malignant to hear your thoughts, because I think it could make for a really interesting discussion. But aside from like the curiosity factor, I don't think any part of me can recommend malignant to anyone. <laughs> I was talking to somebody at work about this movie today and they said that it was intentionally supposed to be bad and that James Wan wanted to make a type of horror movie that someone might be able to pick randomly off of a, a VHS shelf. Now whether that can be, you know, applied to maybe whether that justifies its terrible quality or not, um that's at least what I heard. Yeah, it's a pretty convenient, uh, <laughs> pretty convenient explanation for your movie. It's a uh, yeah movie that costs forty million dollars, more than Insidious one, and I believe more than the first Conjuring, and certainly more than Saw one. Like that money could have gone to so many. Like how many people could he have fed with for that forty million dollars <laughs> instead of making Malignant? Uh, once you go down that line of argument, you could make you could raise that question about many, many, many movies that I'm sure have a way higher budget than Malignant did. And I feel like that's a filmmaker's job to justify the film's own existence first and foremost. It sort of felt like, you know, when like cell phone companies or tech companies make like fake Halloween movies and then at the end it's revealed, oh, the cell phone saved the day all along. Like that's what it felt. Or like a Geico, if Geico made a movie. That's like the kind of vibe that it felt like shot and lit and acted and written just I have real flat notes I think on every single aspect but some people loved it and you know good for them well I also saw something I didn't like I saw a movie called Unhinged that came out last year in 2020 that stars Academy Award winner as it's so fond of boasting Russell Crowe the premise of the movie is that uh, pretty much down on her luck, mother who's going through a divorce and uh, has her child, they're carting them around to school and so on, uh, is on the highway and they honk at Russell Crowe, his character, who is just called The Man, by the way. Which in a way the film tries to explain is like, because The Man could happen to any of us at any time. Honks at this guy and uh, Russell Crowe as his character gets increasingly crazy about it. He stalks her and just like, starts creating this like weird Machiavellian revenge for her, and have, her having honked at him, which becomes spiralingly insane and really over the top and ridiculous and is also just really tasteless. Uh, I mean, the big thing is uh, Russell Crowe insisting that he's going to teach her what a bad day is really like. And it is also kind of like has like heavy Joel Schumacher falling down energy where he's kind of clearly a protag- uh, an antagonist in his like violence. But we're meant to sympathize with him because he's like recently divorced, I guess, and is on pills, although he kills his wife and her new lover in the beginning of the movie. So I don't know how any of that's supposed to work. Uh, it's mostly just kind of Russell Crowe menacing this woman who is just sort of like written to be very inept and terrified and powerless the whole time up until the end of the movie. Uh, so it's horrible. I would say skip it entirely because I really uh, hated it. But there is one shot of a truck plowing through a car that is pretty impressive but you can see that just in the trailer in its entirety so go check that out and then don't watch that movie because it was really bad it's a shame that unhinged will go down in the history books as the first movie to emerge after like the country shut down yeah and it did well uh Mm -hmm. which is uh unsettling 
That's like Doolittle making the most money of 2020 because of when it came out right before the shutdown. And it's like, God, what has this world come to? Talk about a movie that needed to justify its budget. How many mouths could have been fed instead of that production? Sam, have you watched anything good, bad, neutral? Um, you know, I've been so busy lately with work that, um, I've barely been able to watch anything. Um, I've mostly just been sleeping, but my roommate did introduce me to the show called the repair shop on Netflix. It's so beautiful. It is a British show where people bring in items that clearly have like historical value but also just like sentimental value the things that have been in their family for a long time and they restore them to how the people want some people want it to look like brand new some people are just like you know just just fix this bit and keep keep it keep keep the soul alive um I fell asleep twice during it which I felt really bad but I was just so tired but it's so great and then um we did watch Practical Magic because we love it in this house. We stand it in this house and um, Joyride. So I did repeats. Like I've seen these, both of these movies a thousand times, but that's um, kind of nice to go back to old favorites, I guess. It's, it's yeah. really adorable. I really, uh, there was one where they had to like fix the leather on like someone's like great, great grandfather's suitcase or something. And that was Louis Vuitton. Just, yeah. Oh yeah. Louis Vuitton, like original. And it's just cool of like how these old arts are like people are still keeping them alive and like how you learn about how to like restore metal and like leather working. Like it's um, and I think it's a great show to fall asleep to because it's very calming. There's no competition. You're just learning and there's British people talking softly and getting excited about furniture. Yeah. Speaking of people talking, British people talking softly and talking about furniture. I spent a couple days with my parents who are not British and don't talk softly, but we watched a lot of Antiques Roadshow. And I haven't really, so that is all that is to say, I haven't really watched too many movies or television shows to report on for this week's episode, except for lots of Antiques Roadshow, which is always fun because they're always great stories. And it's always like something you never think is going to be worth a lot ends up being worth like thousands of dollars or pounds. There was one, can I bring up one more thing? Oh yeah, go for it. So the teaser trailer came out this week for The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, Joel Cohen's directorial, solo directorial debut. Macbeth with Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, um, you know, some other regulars and Cohen regulars. And it's uh, getting real Throne of, uh, Throne of Blood vibes. And the teaser trailer was awesome. I think uh, that's something that I am extremely looking forward to. And I think a lot of our listeners will also are looking forward to that one. So if you haven't seen it yet, because I didn't even see any press about it. I saw a friend tweet about it. So definitely check out the teaser trailer. Yeah, it looks awesome. I'm really excited to see that one. I think there's going to be a wonderful lineup of movies coming out in the next like five or six months. And I'm super excited about the tragedy of Macbeth. Definitely. I think I mentioned on the power on the uh, podcast before, but the power of the dog, Jane Campion's new 1920s Western is getting a shit ton of like buzz and it's like, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I, like, I'm excited about Dune. It that seems to be pretty divisive, but, like, um, it looks great, and the trailer looks good. So, so it's, excited to get mo- it's exciting to get excited about movies again that are coming out in theaters. Instead of just unhinged. <laughs> That's it. it. Yes, yes. Yeah, really showed me what a bad day was like. Boy. <laughs> You're like, Russell Crowe was the- right. The experience of watching this movie has is the yeah. bad day. Um, well, speaking of bad days, uh, we're going to dive right into our next pick for this theme of troubled productions. And uh, that movie is called American Movie, a 1999 documentary directed by Chris Smith produced and produced by Smith and Sarah Price. This documentary follows uh, Mark Borchert, uh, an aspiring small town Wisconsin independent filmmaker through two years of his life as he tries to finish a horror short called, or what he calls Coven, which is generally the word coven. So this movie, uh, this short Coven 
he's trying to make to raise money for his true passion project, a feature-length film called Northwestern. And over the course of the documentary, we watch as Mark, who's dealing with uh, debt, production mishaps, and general lack of planning and some (laughs) disorganization, he wrangles a motley but supportive crew of friends and family to be his production team, actors, and film financiers. <laughs> this movie has a blend of hilarity, poignancy, and at times uh, sadness. Um, and the film raises some interesting questions about the art of filmmaking and the documentary's relationship with its subject. And I think it's noted that this might be the first documentary that we've done on Butter With That. All right. So I think this that's is, right. So uh, this crew, we are diving also into a new uh, into discussions uh, on a new film format, which is the documentary, which will be really interesting to uh, to kind of unpack. So from what I understand, uh, this movie is the first or this is the first time everyone has seen this movie. Yeah, first time. So before I kind of dive into some production notes, want to just get some quick reactions to what people thought while they watched uh, while they watched American movie. There were several times where I was like, "This isn't real. This can't." I, like I had to look it up multiple times to be like, "This isn't like fake. They're not acting." And then. Um, you guys saw my genuine reaction to the very end. And cause you know, at first you're like, this is so stupid. Um, but as, as you keep watching, I don't know, you get like really endeared to the people and oh God, I felt like sort of responsible and, and bad in some ways. So, um, you know, seeing the end was, was bittersweet. That's interesting. In what ways did you feel responsible or like, like what did you feel like your relationship to the subject matter or the people in it was? God, you know, it's just like you're watching this train wreck and it's almost like I feel bad for watching this because this is someone at their worst. And I wish that like more people would have been in this person's life to be like, no, like you've got to stop. But You know, I guess like ultimately, like this is what his heart wanted. So there's only so much you can do. And there's literally nothing I can do since I'm watching this in 2021. But still, you know, it felt like, should I be like, I wasn't enjoying. Well, maybe I was, but I shouldn't be like having fun off of someone's misery, I guess is how I felt. Yeah, I guess what were other people's thoughts, especially on those lines of what's like, is there a line between sort of just documenting this dude's life or are there invasive elements to this uh, approach and this sort of framework? Uh, Is it exploiting his story or does Mark uh, have a hand in how he's presented? Is there a sort of performative element of how he is in front of the camera or yeah. What are some other people's, what were some other people's thoughts Yeah, mixed feelings on that front. I mean, I definitely, I found it to be a very tender movie, but I I can definitely see where from certain perspectives, it can feel a little bit, if not voyeuristic, then maybe exploitative. But I don't know that it does so any much more so than any documentary on people and human beings that I've ever seen. I mean, I think that, you know, the subject documentarian relationship is inherently subject to things like the, you know, the observation effect a certain degree of performative rep- self-representation. Obviously, the the editor kind of holds sway over a lot of documentaries in terms of how the nor- narrative is ultimately pieced together and spun into a finished film. So uh, I think that this movie doesn't, you know, it, it isn't above those those kind of general, not even criticisms, but conditions of the genre. But in a lot of ways, it's very, very warm and very tender and very loving to its its subjects. I think in a lot of very profound ways. And it does invite you to laugh with them, I think, more than at them in in most regards, Uh, at least in terms of the established context that it maintains through its editing and its narrative structure uh, after the fact. So uh, I I really loved it. I watched it twice in preparation for the episode uh, because the first time I was just kind of hypnotized, I just got really sucked into this environment, um, which I, I like to I'd like to speak about more later as as far as the backdrop of this situation and how it impacts the, and their lives and restricts or advances their motivations, but also just the way it's captured the qual- literal quality of the film itself. 
uh, I think is very transportive or transportative. One of those two words to, uh, to the like mid to late 1990s in a really nostalgic way for me. Yeah. I really liked it. Uh, speaking along the uh, lines of nostalgia, uh, I was today watching the commentary with Chris Smith, Mark, and Mike, who all sit there and watch the movie and talk over. And I think the commentary was done at, like during a DVD release of the movie, so a couple years after it was filmed. And uh, Mark was talking about a lot of nostalgia he was feeling watching the, the, the footage of the documentary, noting certain locations that had been um, turned into construction sites, like a drive-through he featured in Coven was bulldozed over a lot of the cornfields that are featured for some of those fun scarecrow uh, shots in Coven, all turned into housing developments. So even he was feeling that sense of, of sort of nostalgia and loss, being like, mm, the things that I wanted to capture about my community and about my area are already changing so fast. But uh, uh, Connor, what did you uh, what did you think? I uh, echo a lot of the the points that I think Dave brought up, and I think it does feel incredibly genuine. And I think that's you know it feels like you're rooting for these folks. Like you know, people are working hard, trying to achieve something. It's very you know admirable. Uh, it also reminded me a little bit of like Trailer Park Boys, a little bit, um, which is a show that I I love a lot. And so it was just I think it all all around just joy to watch, incredibly funny. Um, and I, you know, one that I'd have to recommend and curious to hear other folks thoughts too. So a little uh, bit about how the production got started. So actually Chris Smith met Mark Borchardt at university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. I think they were both sharing, uh, film editing equipment or like they had met in like the editing room and they were both working on other film projects and they, you know, struck up some conversations and Chris was like, Oh, this guy is kind of interesting. Can I? And then he asked Mark if he could tag along and just film Mark doing his thing. I think Mark was planning a trip to Toronto to pitch his big feature length Northwestern and try to generate money and interest uh, for that production. And so Chris Smith was like, oh, can I just tag along as you as you try to get uh, your production together for Northwestern? And Chris initially wanted to just do a short but then as he was spending time with Mark, Mark's friends, Mark's family, he was like, wow, like he was just getting a lot of footage. And he decided to then do a feature length uh, or like a, a, a long documentary. And in fact, I learned from the co re watching the commentary that Smith ended up with a ton of footage and had to cut a lot out. Like he was going to also follow the lives of Dean Allen, the props and effects guy. He was going to follow the life of... Um, the the casting producer, like the the ca casting person, and so he's going to do like three different lives and how this film kind of joins them together, but ended up having to cut a lot and then really just focused on Mark, Mark's family, um, and the aspects of Mark's life. Uh, but the movie ended up becoming a pretty big uh, independent movie success. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and has since garnered quite a cult status. Uh, I had learned about it through a friend who was like obsessed with it. And then I learned yesterday, like called Mark, like on the phone, like called the house and he picked, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's to be believed, but anyhow, yeah, I'd seen a couple years ago and I was like, what is this story? And then when we decided to do, to do troubled productions theme, I was like, oh, this is an interesting kind of a movie about a movie and it's behind the scenes uh, foibles and mishaps. So yeah, I guess a question I was wondering is what do we think of, of Mark and the way the movie, I guess we, we delved a little bit into this as far as um, sort of how a documentary, sort of the documentary gaze at a subject um, and how that has some complicated factors in the way a subject is represented and the agency that that subject has in uh, the person's own representation. But what do we think of Mark's like artistic vision? What do we think about his relationships with people, with his family, with his friends, with his own projects? I mean, he's a, he's a very like poignantly identifiable figure, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think, you know, he is someone who 
has these sort of ideas, these aspirations and these sort of premises that he's so deeply personally invested in without having, well, uh, uh, without largely having enacted them. I mean, I like, there's some mixed examples of that because he was working on uh Northwestern for like, what, like eight years before the, they begin filming this movie and everything. So they have early footage of Northwestern from 1990. And so it's been in the, it had been in his life for a very long time. Yeah. And just someone who's so clearly committed to their ideas, but is also, I think, struggling to put that into, into action to a degree. But I don't know if that's necessarily his fault. I don't know. It's something that I think we'll explore as we continue. But as far as uh, the guy himself, he's, he's really an interesting dude. Uh, He clearly knows a lot about and cares a lot about film and filmmaking, albeit from a like pretty uh, specific perspective that as far as the things he he suggests he's a fan of and everything. But yeah, I don't know, just a really fascinating figure among a lot of fascinating figures in the movie. And I could see why after the fact he would become the film's focal point. What do we think about, I mean, any other thoughts on, on Mark, the, the person, what do we think? It, what do we think about his relationship with his uncle Bill? So, for some context, <laughs> um, so Mark. So the movie opens with Mark really trying to gather his crew and his actors for Northwestern. We see these me these production meetings. First, like there'll be a room full of like ten people around a big table. Mark's talking about shots and. Uh, sort of his grand master plan for this movie. And then the the film features several more meetings and the number of people in these planning meetings gets smaller and smaller until the last meeting just has mm-hmm. one dude show up. <laughs> it's really sad. So by about the third of the way through the movie, you begin to realize Northwestern is not happening. So it turns out that Mark is also working on this horror short called Coven, and he really needs to finish Coven in order to start raising money he, uh, to start pre-production for Northwestern again. And he does some calculation where he's like, all right, if I finish Coven and I sell 3,000 DHS tapes of this, I'm, I am in a net positive to then begin starting Northwestern. Now, whether those metrics are really, really make sense, I don't know. But he's, so the film starts to turn its attention to his fit completing the production uh, of Coven, which is uh, a movie about um, an alcoholic writer who uh, joins a support group it turns out to be a coven of sorts and he gets possessed. So, um, Very hereditary. <laughs> yeah, so he really was a uh, a trailblazer, so to speak. But even with Coven, he's uh, really up against some financial troubles. Uh, there's a scene where he's going through his bills and rattling off all the different uh, bills he has to pay and the debt he's in. So you really get a sense of he like he needs some money to 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 do Coven. So it. Also, then the movie follows him as he goes to his Uncle Bill's house and basically asks Uncle Bill for $3,000 to jumpstart Coven. But I don't know how old Bill is, but Bill is is quite an older gentleman and uh, has some of the best zingers in the entire movie. <laughs> Bill is sort of this voice of 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 cynicism, but also kind of reason in all of this as Mark... It's like, Bill, I got this great project. Trust me, everything's going to be great. All I need is your support. You can be in the movie too. You're going to be billed as executive producer. How do you like that? And Bill's like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll know it when I see it. You know, like, okay, whatever. But anyhow, he gets the money from Bill. I guess I'm curious, like the relationship between Mark and Bill is is quite interesting. Uh, We talked about exploitive relationships between documents documentarian and subject what do we make of mark's relationship with his uncle i i to me it feels like there's genuine love there um especially more than mark and his father cliff i think like as the documentary goes on cliff just sort sort of washes his hands of the situation um but I don't know. It always felt like Uncle Bill was there to support him. And and it does sort of seem that, you know, we might have only been seeing the parts of Mark being like, give me money, like do this, do that. But I don't know. I, I think that there was probably more happening 
<laughs> outside of the film that um, would have showed like a like a rounder version of their relationship. Yeah, and I mean there are tender moments too between the two of them that don't seem to be about the money necessarily. I mean, uh, I, we see him go over to Bill's and just kind of like check in on him as he's talking about um, the poems he's written about his late wife, uh, which are pretty crushing. Uh, he goes on to like help Bill bathe. He does his laundry. He brings him Thanksgiving dinner while his mother and brother are celebrating Thanksgiving elsewhere. He stays there with Bill and with Mike and some other people from the production and, you know, which, you know, one could skew as like, oh, he's, you know, forgoing his uh, more immediate family to go spend time with like his film crew on a holiday. But but it's also, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like the his dynamic with with Bill is uh is a good deal richer than a simply financial relationship. especially in the sense that Bill, yeah, is seemingly kind of like an emotionally checked out kind of guy. He seems in his older age to be pretty cynical and pretty frankly unhappy in a lot of ways, I'd say. But I think it's there it kind of as a ballast in terms of like supporting uh, supporting his nephew, supporting Mark and saying like, okay, yeah, like if you're going to go for this, go for this, but I'm going to make sure that you have realistic expectations because with, at every step of the way, he kind of like inserts his, Christine, as you've alluded to his little jab or not even like harshly, but just in a way of like, all right, let's keep this in perspective, you know, that kind of thing while still supporting him. So yeah, I, I find their relationship to be pretty tender and authentic rather than exploitative. Although yeah, like converse to what Sam says, I, I only saw what I saw. So you know, and I think along the lines of supportive, I mean, Bill is in uh, one of the opening shots of the of Coven, uh, yelling out a window, and there's an amazing scene of uh, Mark trying to get the diet, like the voice dialogue, recorded again because there was too much noise in the original shot. Speaking of and which, ring. oh yeah, I got some nice uh, background noise in my. You guys get Uncle Bill in here to fix this. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uncle Bill. So he has Uncle Bill. He, like, meets up with Uncle Bill, has him sit in the car again out in the cold. I mean, this is, like, outside of Milwaukee. So uh, many of these shots are out in the cold. <laughs> Everyone is shivering. He has and he's Bill. doing ADR. He has him sit in a car that's not moving to do ADR for a line when he's in a moving car. So you could just as easily have done it inside. It makes no sense, maybe for authenticity's sake, but he has Bill say the line, it's all right, it's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so 32 times. And after take 32, finally Bill's like, I've had enough, I'm done. And it's like, mm -hmm. Bill, like you are supportive if you are willing to do 32 takes of that line. <laughs> it is one of my favorite scenes. That, and then that I appreciate. Sure. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, that for sure is one of the best scenes. And I also appreciate, like, I think if, if you were to make the argument that this is sort of an exploitive relationship, then, you know, you might have seen Mark push him harder. But at that point, when he said he's had enough, it's like, all right. Well, you know, we're going to have to check the tapes, man, and we're going to see if it works. So, like, you know, he's go he's rolling with the punches and with uh, Bill's limitations, albeit a very supportive. The greatest thing is while I'm watching the commentary, Mike and Chris are talking about this scene. And Chris was like, you know what I realized when I was editing this documentary is you could have just used the audio that we had because <laughs> it's <laughs> like two layers of recording. It's the documentarians who are filming Mark filming and recording Bill and he could, Bill could have done it after the fifth take and Chris could have just given Mark his audio. Bill's <laughs> section. Really oh yeah. my God. Oh yeah. It was definitely a Bill's Billception. That was good. Connor. I liked that. I liked that. Um, I also love like the, the mashup that they did in the actual short. Mm -hmm. I have to say, like, the, the parts that we got to see of Coven, I mean, not great, but I was, I was there. I was like, look at him go. He did it. And that part in particular, I mean, it was, like, ridiculous. He's running, and then the truck just, like, slowly creeps by. I mean, what? But, um, I don't know. Not that bad. Bill's hanging out the window. It's all right. It's okay. <laughs> I'll say that like 
the little bits of the movie, yeah, that you see, the finished film, COVID, in the in this documentary, I think is well shot. Like, I think this guy definitely has, like, an eye and definitely knows composition. He knows, as we see him explain to other people when he's in the movie and directing them as cameramen or women, just saying, like, okay, yeah, I'm in the frame, but am I in the TV frame, man? It's got to be both. And, like, it, technically, it seems like he really knows his camera at the very least. So I have the DVD, which is one of the only ways you can watch Coven. I thought it would be on YouTube, but the DVD special features has Coven. So if anyone wants to borrow it, they're more than welcome. And so I've, I've watched it, and it's, it's I mean, it's pretty good. Like, I agree with you. I mean, within within the means of what he had to work with and knowing, you know, all of I guess watching it was a lot of fun because you have all the behind the scenes insight into all of the mishaps. One of my other favorite scenes is an unfortunate scene, but is so funny is when his supportive actor friend, uh, Tom Schimmels has to ram his head through the scored cabinet. This so Tom is like in a couple other of Mark's pro, uh, projects and Tom like it's this shot you're watching Mark who's getting in a fight with Tom uh, try to shove the character's head through a cabinet. And apparently the cabinet door was supposed to be scored so that it would easily break when Tom's head had contact with the board, but like (laughs) the scoring did nothing. And so you watch Tom's head actually make intense contact with the board like four times. But once again, Tom was just kind of literally rolling with the punches and was so committed. But all that is to say, those little anecdotes really make watching the final cut of Coven so much fun because you you really know what all of the actors were doing and all of the hoops they had to jump through. So I would recommend watching it. But also I agree that his eye is really wonderful. Like some of the road shots and a lot of the shots of the the woods, the fields that he really loves that are part of his neighborhood and part of his surroundings, he's like clearly wants to meaningfully capture that that area. And I think that was sort of the vision of Northwestern. Mark never ended up completing Northwestern, but that wasn't supposed to be a horror movie so much as it was supposed to be like kind of a character study and kind of a documentation of the 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 area and you know his kind of his known life but this uh it, you know watching it yeah you know, thinking about it made me think about what if he you know was born 15 years later and was trying to complete these projects with a smartphone you know there's a lot of great um movies that people put on youtube and all these other digital formats and so it's like he has such this passion for film and i wonder like what that would have looked like if he was, you know, when trying to make this movie when he was that age, had, you know, a smartphone and easy editing software and digital technology. Like, I'm just curious of what, just thinking about what, you know, this project and this, you know, moment in his life would have looked like instead. Well, he's still an active filmmaker and is, is making things on film. So I guess that sort of answers that question to a degree. So he just, in 2017, released a a documentary called The Dundee Project, which was like a UFO sighting documentary um, that I I think received a bit of press. It was was like premiered at a couple film festivals and I think got some some decent buzz. Um, So I don't know how to watch it. I don't know where it is. But, and I just was kind of poking around YouTube and he does this, um, during the pandemic, he was doing this uh, podcast where he just like does hot, like, like, quick reviews of uh, movies. And I sent the group one of his uh, like summaries of I'm thinking of ending things. And then an Mm -hmm. animator comes in and and animates uh, what he says. So yeah, he's definitely plugged in and involved in some projects, but, um, but never was never made uh, Northwestern. That's sort of another thing too, though, that I really appreciate about this documentary in the sense that I don't feel it's generally exploitative is that, this this sort of did launch a micro career for this guy. I mean, he's, you know, he's made several films since. He's a pretty recognizable figure as like an outsider within the industry, but n- known within the industry. Um, he's been featured in comic voiceover, uh, in like Family Guy episode, in a Family Guy episode and stuff, and like 
as himself. So he has kind of become this sort of, uh, in a sense, celebrity based on not necessarily his film, but his enthusiasm for filmmaking and this particular film within the documentary. Uh, and also, the I really appreciate that the documentary uh, American movie allows us time to cut full screen to Coven because Coven or Coven, excuse me. Sorry, Mark. Um, sounds too much like oven, man. Uh, but Coven, because that had like, as far as I know, one theatrical release, just the one that's featured at the end of the film. But, you know, this movie premiered at Sundance and it gives Mark a moment to see on a Sundance screen, you know, directed by Mark uh, Bouchard. I think, I think it's, yeah, Borchard. Borchard? I, I heard an yeah. article say Borchard like Orchard. But but not quote. like Oven I, Man. <laughs> but not like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but no, just like, I think it, it does celebrate him in a way that, um, you know, it, it really launched a, a lot of opportunities for him that, you know, I think were it not for the documentary, Coven may have never been heard of at all, I would think, or at least not beyond the social circles in which it existed. So... Uh, I think they did a real credit to this dude in the end, generally speaking. I also think that not only did the movie show major clips of Coven uh, at the end uh, of the documentary, but also interspersed throughout is amazing footage of older projects that Mark did with his friends that are wonderful, like childhood uh, super late footage of like projects that he like as a kid he and his friends did and then into like late teens early 20s there's more the scarier one two three and four there's i blow up which <laughs> is amazing i've seen that that one this is on youtube yeah it's and it really showcases not only kind of the 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 warmth and friendship that he clearly has with his crew he like has a crew you know and he just like clearly loved making movies with his friends and his brothers and everything like that. But also his like aptitude for gory practical effects, like a kid, like a 16 year old kid who goes to a grocery store, buys cow tongue in order to put it in his mouth, attach the cow tongue to a line of fishing wire and have it be pulled out as guts are spilling, like, or ketchup is spilling out of his shirt is commitment to amazing practical gory effects. And and so it just, I think, showcases cre- that wonderful creativity that um, that he had. And that also looks, looks really cool and looks really good. So I, I just liked that the documentary did spend time on showcasing work that he had done even before um, Coven. And also adds to that sort of poignancy and uh nostalgia even with his in his own life as well as he kind of looks back uh on his life and i guess as far as uh it concerns people that are sort of connected to him and their portrayal how do we feel about mike that being uh mike shank who provided the music uh uh whether it was his own like intense guitar riffs or Bach fugues. He provided all the background music to, to the documentary. Um, my roommate said that Mike stole the show. And I think I agree. Um, when Mark was recording all of those people screaming and Mike just gives that performance. It's <laughs> we, amazing. We were stunned. We all sat on the couch like... <laughs> So I don't know. I, I liked it. It's so wonderful because for the whole movie, Mike has pretty much the same energy. He's very soft-spoken, sort of just doesn't, not very emotive. You know, the the docu- Chris will ask him a question and like Mike provided some pretty harrowing stories, um, like an overdose he experienced, like some really intense stuff. But Mike's entire delivery is just kind of like, yeah. Okay, uh-huh, and then this happened, and then the scream happens, and you're like, wow, Mike, that came from inside you. <laughs> also, just so many wonderful little moments between he and Mark. I'm just like, Mark, make sure that everybody's got their brown gloves. Does everybody have brown gloves? No, no, dude, dude. And you can hear him kind of laughing, too. So it's, yeah, 
there's some uh, mo- the clips on you or like entire uh, movies on YouTube, which it's Mike and Mark watching a horror movie and doing like commentary to the horror. Like they do Night of the Living Dead and they're just sitting on their couch, like commenting on the movie. <laughs> oh, that great. sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, just I think it's uh, so genuine. And I think that, that what works, you know, works is how genuine so much of this project seems to be. Um, I think uh, like other, I mean, I think the movie uh, does a great job of, of giving you insights into, yeah, his, his family, his friends. I, one of the people that I uh, thought was, was a wonderful spotlight was his mother, Monica, like talk about mm-hmm. supportive and also, so it's like initially you see sort of like the motherly support, um, but then she ends up having to like work the camera and like shoot some of the final scenes for Coven. And there's a great, I think you referenced it earlier, Dave, when he's like, is my head in the frame? Like, is it in the TV? Like where, where's my head? And you hear his mother's voice uh, in the background being like, I think you went out of the frame. You kind of moved your head. You went out of the frame. He's like, dang it, ma. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think, I think his mother is, is a, is a wonderful, yeah, there's a wonderful spotlight, uh, on, on her and her trying to kind of, I think at one, on one hand, sort of embrace all of the wild ideas that her son, Mark, you know, has and all of his aspirations and everything. And on the other hand, it's like, she just rolls with it. She, she helps him with his production and. She goes, she trudges out to the woods. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Are there any uh, specific, uh, we've spotlighted or we've showcased a couple scenes. Are there any other scenes that really stood out in people's brains or made people laugh? Um, learning that he has three children was just like a complete surprise. And I think that there are moments throughout the documentary that are like, his heart's in the right place, but everything else, I don't know, except for this one moment where I think he's lying next to his daughter um, and her daughter, his daughter is in her sleeping bag. And she says she's wearing like this um, purple blindfold. And she says like, shit, I could just see the purple. And he's like, did you just, did you just curse? Did you just say shit? I don't care. But did you? I just want to know so I'm not going crazy. I thought that was the sweetest thing. There are some really wonderful moments between him and his kids. Um, like he's shooting some final, uh, uh, is it called ADR? Is that when they reshoot uh, audio? It's called ADR. Oh. And he, he expresses to his daughter that she asks, what is ADR? And he says, it's additional dialogue recording. It's actually automated uh, dialogue uh, 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 it's something else. Automated dialogue. Um, he well, gets it wrong, but he tries to teach her. It's great because she asks him, "Yeah, what's ADR?" He and then he provides this very complicated answer, and she's just and he's like, "Do you get it now?" And she's like, "No," <laughs> but 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 definitely tender, tender moments. And she follows him a lot, like around into the cutting room, into the. Um, as he's trying to re-record a lot of audio. It's automated dialogue replacement, by the way. <laughs> ADR. Autom- I figured uh, I should know it if I'm going to criticize that. But um, but yeah, well, a very sweet moment. There it is. You, you, you learned it here, folks. But yeah, so some tender moments with, with his children. Um, definitely some drama with his current girlfriend and old girlfriend or partner. So it definitely gets into to some moments of uh, relationship tension and drama. But so the movie, as we said, so he scraps Northwestern focuses on Coven. uh, And then the movie kind of all culminates at the film screening in his town of the the final cut of the short Coven. And what's so uh, also tender is that when they arrive at the movie theater, the local movie theater, the line is around the block to see the movie. And I, that came to, uh, when I first watched this movie, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. Cause I was like, this movie has been a mess from the very beginning. Like you'd think either word would get around the town, like <laughs> don't, this movie's going to be garbage or no one would even know about it. But sure enough, the whole town and more shows up. 
Apparently they had to turn 75 people away because they just didn't have enough room in the movie theaters. And in the commentary that I was watching, uh, Chris asks Mark, like, did, were you expecting that like size of a turnout or no, actually this was an interview with, with Chris and the interviewer was like, were you or Mark expecting that major, uh, that big size turnout for that movie? And Chris was like, well, that whole town was super supportive and so excited that, uh, independent movies were being made and that, uh, Mark had a lot of connections and, and had a lot of friends and people really rooting for him. And so the movie does really end on quite, in my view, a positive note because you see all these people show up. The, the documentary itself shows major clips of Coven and the movie ends um, with a big eruption of, of applause. And it really seems like uh, a really sort of wonderfully fitting conclusion to a, a, a pretty hampered and <laughs> discombobulated production story. Um, but, and so with, again, I guess that through line of, of just supportive people around, around Mark that really, even if they don't a hundred percent believe in his vision are like ready to, to jump in and support and, and be there to watch, to watch his movie. So not only a showcasing of, of Mark and his friend's life, but really showcasing of a whole town and a, you know, landscape as well. That's definitely something I really appreciated about the title, in particular, American Movie. I think it's definitely a two-pronged title in the sense that uh, it is sort of like an American dream story, you know, someone pulling themselves up and, and creating something of their own, rising from their own circumstances and being driven by the enthusiasm and dedication, enthusiasm about and dedication to their vision in terms of seeing it through to the end at whatever cost. Uh, but I think it's also a very befitting title in the sense that it is in equal measure, I think, about those limitations. Uh, I think it's a movie that is in a lot of ways about a uh, very pronounced type, a very pronounced a very specific type of Midwestern American poverty of de-industrialized rural and small urban centers um, and the impact that has on communities, how it causes a lot of people to become, uh, in a sense, through necessity, tighter family units, uh, in some of those pockets because of having to care, be caretakers for one another or, or, or uh, financially care for each other and, and things like that. So I think it really speaks to a lot of different things. And it's a really brilliant film in terms of not only having its humor, but having a lot of warmth and tenderness within its characterization, but also putting under, um, putting under the microscope, a very specific era of Midwestern American poverty. Um, and I think that that title really, brings it home on both fronts in a really appropriate and, and, and befitting way. And in a way that the movie is without shying away from those things. And in fact, going out of its way to include them, whether that be alcoholism or just general debt and poverty still comes to a happy ending, which I, I think is, you know, it's, it's to the film's credit. It's a comforting thing, but I, I also think it's to the film's credit that it doesn't not include those elements. And as far as the happy ending, it's not fabricated by the movie. It really is just because like the the community that the the movie is spotlighting is like all right like filmmaking is happening we're going to like show up we're going to we're going to cheer mark on so it's not like the movie had to sort of like put a or like sort of fabricated like a rosy ending it was like oh like you know people people are supportive people show up and how, however unrealistic or poorly planned his goals are, yeah, that community <laughs> yeah. supports him. It's almost like it's almost like a real world version of like the fiction that is Lars and the Real Girl or something in a different way, uh, but in terms of like a community just sort of accepting someone via their specific vision for what they want, even if it's at odds with the the general perspective of that area. Because another thing he, he does kind of do, which is a bit of a bummer in the one scene, I think it's. I think it's maybe the Super Bowl party where he's had a lot to drink and is yeah is things of, really come to a head in that in that scene. Yeah, and he's kind of like dragging his mom a little bit, saying like, well, "What am I going to do? Walk around the kitchen like you for however many hours and live my life like that? No, I'm going to be something bigger. I'm like not going to be dead like that." But at the same time, it spends half the movie drinking and watching football, which I I don't think is a bad thing. But like, it's it's certainly the sort of lifestyle that he criticizes because of his aspirations while still being a part of that. So I, I think it's complex in that way. And I don't hold any of that against him. I think it, it makes him a more well-rounded and interesting person, but, um, 
but yes, yes, just kind of an, I think it's an interesting commentary on a lot of things. Yeah, I think I think you really tied a lot of themes uh, together. Um, and I feel like that was like a, a really nice note. I feel like kind of uh, as a summation of our conversations and really a summation of the movie. Any other? Yeah. Does anyone else have any thoughts or last minute moments of this is completely like not important and it's also i don't know what to do with this information but uh mark definitely looks looks like a dollar store adam driver sam yes absolutely (laughs) with like lighter hair but like similar yeah 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 and uh, so I like I had started watching it myself and my roommates were at the dining room table and they were like looking and they're like, you know who he looks like? And I went, don't even say it. He's like, knew. <laughs> yeah, wow. I was thinking that too a lot of the time. An even more fitting summation of this entire movie. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. I, I couldn't have picked a more perfect uh, note to uh, to conclude on. That is that is American movie for you. I, it's a big recommend for me. Um, if you want to just catch snippets of it, there are just like clips uh, of it on YouTube. Um, but yeah, that, and, and uh, maybe we'll do some more documentaries down the road with Butter with that. Um, but who knows? Who knows? I did have a quick uh, whiteboard question to kind of throw in for the crew. And that is if you uh, were able to make kind of a, a small budget independent movie, um about anything what would you want to make it about this is just so much pressure uh, yeah we we you established this question at the at the top of the episode and i really have no idea i mean i've i've got ideas but i'm not gonna air them here but off the top of my head like if i did have a small budget and thought a story would be interesting enough i would make a movie about uh uh operation acoustic kitty um so this was a uh, cia uh directed project which was intended to use cats like actual cats, living cats, to spy on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies. In an hour-long procedure, a veterinarian surgeon implanted a microphone in a cat's ear canal uh, and a small radio transmitter at the base of its skull and a thin wire through the fur would transmit a message back to headquarters. Uh, They went to test this, and unfortunately, the cat was immediately run over by a car after they'd spent $20 million on the project. Speaking of production nightmares, but I think you could probably write some interesting characters around that scenario while also having a lovable story about uh, an experimental cat that is uh, intended to be weaponized, but then is unfortunately killed at the expense of $20 million. Dave, that needs a Hollywood ending. That cat is going to live <laughs> or you will get no funding. <laughs> wow. Well, That's maybe they, great, maybe though. at the very end, they just like, you know, everyone's really sad about it. They have their like, I don't know, uh, acoustic kitty funeral. But then uh, another guy is walking by with his dog and, and they're just all like the funeral, like, say, and then it just ends. <laughs> that kitty probably got ran, run over because he's like, I have a chip in my ear. It's going to throw out my entire, off my entire center of balance. But mm. does anyone else have a tragic movie that they're going to make? Um, so my hometown was... Uh, really torn apart in 1972 because of a flood. Um, It was Hurricane Agnes. So um, the Agnes flood is what they call it. And um, I have like so, so much literature about it. And um, my grandfather's car is featured in some of the books. And one of the most outrageous things that happened is... um, when the water crested over, um, there was a cemetery right there. And so all of the caskets just rose up from the ground and started floating down um, the, the city way. So like, that's fucked up. And I would like love to talk more about like, how does the city heal from all of this trauma? Would it be a dramatization of what happened or would it be a documentary? Um, or I think both. It's, yeah, uh, maybe both. I think it's already pretty dramatic, but like, um, you know, I, in maybe like Mark style, I could imagine having um, a, a casket open and someone like waving as they're floating down the, <laughs> the main track. That'd be kind of funny. <laughs> 
Or like an interview is then conducted like with the <laughs> like bones inside. That's brilliant. I would watch that, that movie. Yeah. Good preview for next week too. So for my short film, I kind of was, or you know, low budget film, thinking of a few different ideas, but one, as you were talking, kind of came to mind was this time in my hometown when I was maybe you know, sometime in elementary school where turkey vultures for like five years, like four years, just like basically like swarmed the town every fall. And it just happened out of nowhere. Something about migration patterns, habitat loss, et cetera. And so then a turkey vulture day, like festival was established. So we started this new like fall parade um, and like festivities. And this is also the time of like really, a really heated like um, city, like town hall races of like, you know, the, the Bush era and like really things politically coming to a head in my small town at the same time, wanting to attach a um, cell phone antenna to the water tower, which is right next to my elementary school and parents protesting dozens and dozens of families protesting because it was going to give us kids brain cancer. And so I just, I've been thinking a lot about just that moment. Those like three years in my young life. Um, and some of it feels kind of relevant to today. And I don't know what this form would look like, but I feel like a documentary of some kind. And I was just like a very, like a you know slice of life of a small town in South Jersey. Just I think some pretty interesting stuff happened in just a few short years. And then the turkey vultures disappeared one day, one year. They just like never came back. I was about to say, what a twist ending if like it's all been building up to the first festival because of these turkey vultures that have been coming for years. And there's all these other communal tensions. And then at the one relief that they're supposed to have when the turkey vultures fly through the parade, they just don't. <laughs> that would be amazing. I, or like a la Spielberg, you could have a young boy befriend a turkey vulture and then the whole town tries to kill all the turkey vultures and the young boy is like, no, no, no. Turkey vultures are not what their reputation says they are. They're, they're kind. <laughs> they're gentle. People have to have that talk in the town as well, saying, please do not kill the turkey vultures. Do not shoot <laughs> the turkey vultures off it. your trees. Yeah, they have a bad reputation or they get a bad, yeah. But uh, I would also watch that. All these movies I would watch. Um, the movie I would make, it basically is a is a remake of a movie that my friends and I made when we were in middle school. And it was basically a murder mystery where uh, somebody got killed with a turkey lifter, which if you haven't seen a turkey lifter, they're terrifying. They're like pronged devices that are supposed to uh, be spears for the underside of the turkey in order to flip it over during Thanksgiving. And my friend's mom had a turkey lifter and we s found this device in the kitchen. And we were like, what is this? Uh, so we decided to make a murder mystery around who was it who killed so-and-so in like, you know, in the kitchen with the turkey lifter. Uh, so that's, yeah, that would be my film. Just remake it. Uh, haven't seen those friends in a while. So it would be a great excuse to call them up and be like, Hey, we're going to remake this movie. I got the budget of $800 and we're going to refilm it. Did you film uh, it? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, my friend had a camcorder and we, we just like, oh, we did, we did everything. We did the turkey lifter. We did a project for English class about uh, the uh, lost generation. We did Depeche Mode music videos. <laughs> we did uh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, do these still exist in some that, way? Yeah. They exist on May's camcorder. I don't know. I don't know if she still has. I mean, I she should. You know what? I'll just have to email her and be like, hey, where's all this footage? Because we need to start remaking all of this. But that's what I kind of loved about American movie is it like, especially those shots of Mark and his friends' old movies. It was like, oh, like to be able to rewatch and unearth so many like kid, like childhood projects is such a wonderful trip, like down memory lane and like. I don't know. There's just something just beautiful about the unbridled creativity of, of yeah. Kid. No, not to say, not to say that any age there's unbridled, there is at every age unbridled creativity. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But there is certainly something to watch old projects from when you're a kid. I will um, say I do have a digital copy of uh, a film that some friends and I made back in junior high school or no early high school called The Day They Outlawed Christmas. So oh! someday we'll get together and watch that one. Maybe, yeah, maybe one. Uh, yeah, that'll be it would be so nice to to rewatch old project footage. But um, but all the, the films you guys pitched here today on Butter With That 
should get funding. So listeners out there, we've pitched you the ideas. Show us the money and we'll make it. We'll make it happen and we'll premiere at all the film festivals. All right, folks. We're so excited to be uh, a part of the Movie John Network with uh, amazing other uh, pod, host of podcasts. Uh, excited to be a part of that family. Uh, we are up on the socials. We're up on Instagram. You can send us an email. Please, any pitch us a film. Send us an email and tell <laughs> us an independent small budge movie you would make. Uh, we're always happy to read and read your emails uh, on the air. So have a wonderful whatever. We're going to catch you uh, next week for our final installment of Troubled Productions. Can't wait to talk about this movie. It's going to be awesome. So again, have a wonderful whatever, and we shall catch you, catch you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.